0: Mark chapter 60, or Mark chapter 6, verse 30. See, I'm off for a week, so I have no idea what I'm doing this morning, so you're just gonna have to live with it. Um, It it simply says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. Now, of course, in, in order to understand that comment at all, we have to back up to some verses that came earlier to understand what they had gone and done and what they were doing, in order to understand what happens next. So if you back up to verse seven in Mark chapter six, we are told this, and Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So then we have where we started, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had been doing and what they taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to, uh, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all their towns and got ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, I don't know about you, but I uh, n- noticed this last week on March the 28th that it was the anniversary of uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster out in uh, Pennsylvania. It was one of those things that kind of rocked our country a little bit because the idea that we would have a nuclear accident that could devastate and destroy so many different lives was really unnerving. In fact, uh, as you read through the story, it was 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979, then uh, that when this meltdown began. Uh, apparently what had happened is that one of the pressure valves that was meant to keep the thing regulated failed to operate and all of a sudden, the temperature in the core began to go up. It could stand a temperature of about 5,000 degrees, and over the time period, they had systems in place that were supposed to look after it. They, in fact, they have a cooling system that would normally engage the, that process and provide the coolant that was necessary to keep the core from overheating and creating a nuclear accident. The problem is when this started, there was some human error. They couldn't figure out exactly what was going on and they couldn't get a good reading on what exactly was happening, so they actually shut the cooling system off, which would, would have solved the problem. But because of sort of the panic that went on with people and the mistakes, they started making more and more mistakes and it created this problem of a possible meltdown. As I had mentioned, the, the core had gotten to a point of 4,000 degrees. It had, if it had gotten to 5,000 degrees, it would have had some serious problems. You know, it's, as I thought about that, I kept thinking of the world that we live in. That we are living in a world where, if I can personalize it a little bit, is that we have all kinds of individuals that are having nuclear meltdowns in their own life. Uh, The way that they normally create their own pressure valves to control the things that are going on in life or around them in their relationships and in their circumstances are not working. And because of that, the the core of their being is starting to overheat because they're panicking about what could happen. They're fearful about their own safety and they're fearful about their own self-worth and they're fearful about all kinds of things and we have everything from road rage to ethnic discrimination and prejudice. We have everything from gaslighting where people are basically bullying other people to accept their position. We have massive identity crisis in terms of our culture. We are, in every sense of the word, on a personal level, having nuclear meltdowns in people's lives and in our culture. It is where people are living from one panic moment to the next. They are living almost in a perpetual state of crisis. Between their own self-imposed activities and the things that are going around them in the world, we have all kinds of pressure failures in all kinds of lives around us. And you might even feel it yourself as you're sitting here this morning. The, The pressure of relationships and marriage and parenting about trying to make money and provide for your family or not if you don't have a job. The the pressure valves are immediately feeling the tension and sometimes we figure that it feels like they're failing because the the tension and the heat is accelerating in our life about what to do and how to solve the problems around us. If there was a magic formula, we'd love to have it and I think sometimes we think if we can just figure out the right valve to switch, it'll solve everything. But it doesn't quite work that way. You know, one of the things that we will discover is that life will fill up your life with all kinds of junk and pressure and tension if you allow it. Most of us are running frenetic, chaotic lives that are fairly frenzied from Sunday to Sunday. Everything from sports to hobbies to job responsibilities to volunteer positions to ministry-related issues People are stacked up to their eyeballs with activity and busyness and the pressure's mounting. And we would be naive to think that we're exempt from that. We are finding Christian leaders all over the country who are failing and dropping out of ministry because not only the pressure that puts on themselves in terms of being successful pastors, but they're running into churches that are dead set against change that they are more convinced to live in the safety of things being the same way all the time and tradition and their own personal preferences are what dictating choices and whether they grow or not. We live in a world where nuclear reactors are not the only things melting down. We need to sort of take stock of our own lives and sometimes we have really very few options in terms of how do we deal with our own pressure. How do we deal with the tension that's leached into our own life and circumstances that we feel overwhelmed with because we don't know how to fix it? We don't know what pressure switch to throw to cool off everything so that it feels normal again. One of the things that Jesus did is that he called these disciples, and as far as we know in this category, there's only 12 of them that he sends out, but he sends them out ahead of himself into the cities to communicate uh, and have a certain level of authority to do things, and I want to jump on that for a moment just to remind you of what the disciples are trying to deal with. They are, in a sense, God's Jesus representatives, his ambassadors as Jesus tries to penetrate the lost house of Israel and call them back into relationship with God. They have their religion, they have their social structures, they have everything, and in their mind, everything is normal. Everything they have is... they. they've it's in control, we know what we're doing and we have our fingers on it. Sometimes I think the more we think we're in control, probably the worst off we are, because the danger is then we don't need God and I can handle life on my own. But the danger in this situation is that they have been given a tremendous privilege by Jesus. If you're a spectator and, and crowds have been flocking to Jesus, everybody wants to get near Jesus because this guy's pretty impressive. He casts out demons, he heals people, He's got his powerful message. He doesn't cave into the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not just content with going through the rituals of religion, but he's doing something that's changing and transforming lives. And so he is absolutely an attraction for the culture. And people have been flocking to him. And so Jesus sends these men out and they are communicating, they're representatives of Jesus, and he gives them authority, but. We have to remember that with great privilege comes great responsibility. You know, we live in a world right now where people want privileges without the responsibility. We look at the success of other churches and ministries and other things going on and it's kinda like, boy, wouldn't it be great to have that. But we often fail to understand the commitment and the cost of what it takes for people to get there. We live in the world where we want the magic parachute that whether it's our work or our business or whatever, we all wanna sort of find the one thing that'll make us financially independent and then I can rest and I can relax and, and do whatever I want to in life. But many of us keep striving and it keeps escaping us because it costs something. People want success without the crucible of what it takes to get there. And our culture is running frenetically. There's a frenzied pace of, in spite of the fact that our culture seems to be shifting in some ways, like there's a movement now to a four-day work week so that people can have weekends off. Not sure I'm looking forward to that. It'll come eventually, but then what'll happen is people will work four days and then everybody will escape on weekends to be gone, and so the church is gonna just be depleted. The great thing about work days and having five days or whatever it is is People have to stick around for their kids and school and everything else. I don't know what the schools are going to do. But we still have this thing about being busy. We still have this pace in our life that gets up at 5 in the morning and goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night. And at times we wear it like a badge of honor. I'm so busy. I'm 24-7. I'm working from sunup to sundown. And and I'm doing all these things for God, whether it's ministry or life. And the danger is, is that with all these privileges, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to my mental and emotional health. If you're a parent and have more than one kid and you're involved in sports or any kinds of other activities, you know what I'm talking about. If there's anything that'll drive parents insane, it's often keeping up with all the activities that they're involved in with their kids. And the reason for that is that we want our kids to enjoy life and have as many experiences as possible, even at the expense of our own health. And we don't know quite what to do to to, to prevent that from happening. So when Jesus sends the disciples out, he gives them this tremendous privilege and this authority, but he also makes them vulnerable. You'll notice that he tells them, you're not to take any supplies with you, that if you're gonna do ministry for me, I'm gonna force you to depend on the Father to provide for you, not in some magical sprinkle dust where things are just gonna show up like manna, but you're going to go as my forerunner into cities and you're going to preach a message that it's not going to be comfortable. You're going to challenge the status quo. You're going to challenge the religion of the time. You're going to challenge where individuals are living. I don't know about you, but that would create angst in my life the moment I hear it. Like, we're going to do everything that's against what's going on in our culture. And so the tension would rise and they'd probably swallow hard and go, Okay, if this is what Jesus wants, we'll do it, but wow, this sounds really uncomfortable. Because they're challenging everything that is comfortable for the culture. They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They're proclaiming repentance and returning to God and reorienting their lives around their creator, not on their own personal preferences and the demands of this ministry means that he's also given them the authority or the responsibility to cast out demons. Now, we may not feel this in the same way, but what it tells me is that if you're gonna be on mission for Jesus, you're gonna be involved in spiritual warfare. It's the very nature of ministry. Now, if you think that's sort of a a secondary issue, then you're probably not involved in very much ministry or mission, because we are told plainly that we are going up against the God of this world who has enslaved the world to sin and fear. And, 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 our, and the mission is to free people from that fear by placing faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. To give them, as Galatians 5 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And so we're on a rescue mission. We're not here to condemn the world, we're here... To to carry out the message of reconciliation, to to rescue human beings from this plight of a Christless eternity. And I suspect as these disciples went out, they felt the power and the tension and the anxiety of what it means to confront the God of this world and demons who are stronger and more powerful than the people that they possess and who pose a real threat to the health and well-being of individuals and to them. And it's a a ministry that's captivated even further in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter six. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And I suspect that the weight of that fell heavy on the disciples. And I suspect that if we're not aware of it, or we don't think that's a big deal, then we're probably not in areas of ministry and mission where we're engaging the enemy for the lives of people. It's very easy to build a bubble around my schedule and my programs where everything is fairly convenient and predictable, but not with them. And it's impossible to preach the gospel and call people to repentance without engaging spiritual warfare. In this particular text, I think the, not, it's not just physically helping people who are being obsessed or possessed by spiritual demons, but there's also this sense that when they go into a place, there's people that may just flat out spit in their face and reject them and the message they're preaching. It can be as powerful and as overt as demon possession, and it can be as simple and as subtle as them rejecting you and rejecting the message of the gospel. Now, I don't know how you deal with that, but I know that there's been a huge part of my life where I avoided that at all costs because my life was lived because if I was really going to honor God, then I would live in such a way that people would like me, so I wouldn't artificially create antagonism to the gospel, but the, the litmus test is they had to like me So it's really easy to bail out of the message of the gospel and be nice to people and be friends to people and not engage that spiritual warfare because I've got insecurities that beg for me to want people to like me rather than proclaim Jesus. I don't know how you deal with the pressure of that, but that can be overwhelming to the point where we just sort of check out and go, you know what, I'm a Christian, I'll do nice things, it's great, I've got friends that don't know Jesus, but if God wants them saved, he doesn't need me to do it. But there's also the demands of meeting needs. These people were also given the responsibility to go and heal people, and there's times that they put oil on people, and it was a process of inviting the Spirit of God to heal people of illness and sicknesses. When Barb and I were in Portland, she was a caregiver for an 89-year-old lady. Their house was big enough, had three levels to it. We lived in the bottom level, she lived on the upper level, and my wife looked after her 24-7. My wife could write a book on what it means to care for an 89-year-old woman who is starting to lose a few discs and mental capacities. I could write a few stories myself. If you don't think that, that caring for other people, especially when they've got needs and they're sick and they're not healthy and whatever. I, I think we have this picture that the disciples just went around snapping their fingers and people were healed. They had to take the time to pour oil on them and move alongside in their journey and, and to be praying for them. And if I don't know if you know the anxiety of what it means to care for people who aren't healthy or for loved ones or be a caregiver or for a spouse or for kids that may be struggling with health issues and whatever it happens to be, whether it's the invisible afflictions of the mind or physical challenges or whatever it happens to be, that can be extremely demanding. And yet that was part of what Jesus called these men to do in, 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 along with the idea of proclaiming the gospel. It wasn't just proclaiming the gospel. It was caring for people. And so it's easy to become workaholics. It's easy for, it would be easy for them to become obsessive-compulsive. That There's so many needs around them that they're working 24-7 and engaged in ministry and engaged in people trying to do spiritual battle, caring for the needs of individuals around them and healing and dealing with the spiritual battles. I don't know about you, but I think that'd be exhausting. Now, most of us check out before we get to that point. We don't have the emotional capacity to deal with all that, so at some point, we just hit the brakes and go, not doing this. I'm I'm gonna draw really strong boundaries, and that's the end of it. We have some people I've done ministry over 30 years who are OCD and perfectionists. In fact, there's times that they brag that, hey, I'm on 24-7, I do all this work for ministry, and the danger with that is they can easily look at everybody else as being slackers. You know, I think the Apostle Paul probably struggled with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, you know, because I persecuted the church of God, what he would probably consider the unpardonable sin, he goes, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I'm not fit to be an apostle because I persecuted people. I persecuted Christians and had them imprisoned and I actually had them killed and executed because of their faith in Christ. So therefore, I, I have no worthiness, I have no right to do this, but then the very next sentence he says, you know what, but I've worked harder than all the other apostles. Uh, by the way, that was God's grace, not me, but I think as a normal human being who is certainly OCD, well, that's not a medical diagnosis, that's just a personal opinion, because this guy was obsessed, that he probably at times struggled with the horrors that he did to Christians, and I bet you he tried to compensate at times by saying, I've got to make up for this. I gotta make up for the failure and the disaster that I caused other Christians and I've gotta do double time and triple time and I'm gonna be a workaholic until I fix the disaster that I created for the church of Jesus. I can't prove that. And I think he at some point came to grips with the reality that the reason he worked so hard has only credit to God's grace. But I think he was a normal human being that struggled and what he says in 1 Corinthians would confirm it, I struggle with what I did to people And now I'm working harder than ever. (laughs) I I often joke that the danger with those people is that they probably would have a place to judge God because after six days of creation, God took a day's rest and didn't work seven days a week. And but I do. I never take a break. I I deserve a badge of honor because while everyone else is taking breaks and slacking around, hey, even when God took a break, I'm not taking a break. And there's something within us and in our culture, whether it's circumstantial, whether it's trying to make up for past failures, whether it's trying to prove something to people or even prove something to God, the danger is we become massive workaholics, whether it's in life or ministry, to, pride, to prove our worth and to prove our accomplishments. And I don't know about you, but it kind of runs into a dead-end thing. We, We wear these things like a badge of honor. In the Old Testament, there's this picture that we won't go into much detail, but I want to propose to you that one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that we could possibly have is the ability to rest and take breaks. When I figure out how to do it, I'll let you know. So I'm not, I, I, and most of you know me well enough, I'm not speaking as an expert who knows how to do this. On the other side of the coin, I do want you to consider that there's some people who take so many breaks from life and ministry that they're basically spectators. That all that matters is my personal comfort zone and my little bubble and my little schedule. Anything that intrudes on that, not, not doing it. And so it's easy for people to go one way where they're obsessive and compulsive and it's easy to judge those who aren't doing what they're doing because they're slacking. I'm the one that's doing the real ministry and others are going, "Yeah, I'm not getting into that cycle. I'm not doing anything unless it fits into my convenient schedule." In the Old Testament, Solomon gave the people a picture of what God's rest looked like, and I, and I want to suggest this to you because you might say, well, taking a break, you know, that's either, some of them say, that's for sissies. Those are people who just don't have the personal resilience or character to keep plugging on when they need to, and others are going like, I'm so up to my eyebrows and stuff, I couldn't take a break if my life depended on it. And I want to build a, a very small picture of a theology of rest that maybe you haven't thought about. First Kings chapter eight, there's this tremendous blessing that Solomon pronounces on people, and I won't read it, about halfway through that text, you'll say, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to the people of Israel. Now remember, they were enslaved in Egypt, he delivered them out by, through the Passover, They went through the Red Sea, they had Pharaoh pursue them, tried to kill them and take them back. They grumbled and complained as God went through the wilderness with them. He tried to put them into the promised land, but because of a lack of faith, they did a 40-year hike to get rid of the doubters. Not one, he says... Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments of of our fathers. Three little quick things on theology of rest. The first one is rest really is anchored to experiencing God's promises and having confidence in them. This isn't so much me claiming and demanding, claiming God's promises and demanding that he does something. This is about entering into his promises and seeing his faithfulness to us. It's like leading someone to Christ. Only a fool would say, hey, it was my brilliant argumentation and presentation of the gospel that saved them. Only a fool would do that because only Christ can save people. I don't save people. But what is really one of the greatest privileges in life is to sit down and be intentional about being obedient as an ambassador of Christ, to have discussions with people that don't know Jesus, to try to answer their questions, to present the simple truth of the gospel, and then all of a sudden sit there and go, wow, God's changing their heart. And when they go, I want to accept Jesus, all I can do is stand back and go, that's amazing. What'd you do to get there, Brad? I don't know, I'm just like watching. I, I'm just spectating here. And some I mean, I had conversation, I built relationship, I've shared Jesus, but God's changing their heart right in front of me. And that's probably a, the best picture of what it means to experiences, experience the promises of God and have confidence. That's why we learn to have relationships with people that don't know Jesus, because I still believe the gospel can save somebody. If I don't have confidence that the gospel will save somebody, I have no reason to have a conversation with anyone. But when you have the privilege to see God change someone's heart, it's the most exhilarating rest for the soul that you can ever imagine. Because I get to experience his promises in real life. And seeing it change, not only my life, but someone else's. But we get to experience the power of his presence. That's what Solomon said, is that he will not leave or forsake us. And and the danger for many Christians, the reason they don't experience rest in their life, or peace, or calmness in the midst of all the chaos, is because they do not have a real awareness of the personal presence of Christ with them. It's so easy to treat Jesus as an idea or a theological concept, not a personal relationship with a person. Now, if you're new here, you have the privilege of maybe hearing that for the first time. If you've been here for the last 13 years, you're probably sick of me saying that. But if you go through life and give very little thought to the personal presence of Christ with you, you will not experience his rest in all of its fullness because his rest is anchored in a person, not an idea or a concept. Certainly not our circumstances or our situations. And thirdly, the highest practice is the delight to live according to his word. The people who understand God's rest are not spectators in God's program, but they're ones that experience his peace at a level because they experience his promises and they have absolute confidence in it. They are individuals who have an awareness of the personal presence of Christ with them. And the greatest delight that flows out of that is I get to live for Jesus and obey his word. They don't see that as a restriction. They don't see that as a prison. They don't see that as a duty. The greatest delight of my life is to live for Christ. And those are the people, regardless of how busy their life are, that experience the rest of Christ in their own personal life. I mean, that's really what Jesus said back in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many people misinterpret this to say, well, that's the gospel when I trust Jesus and I'm at peace with God. That fact is true based on Romans 5. But Jesus has come and learned from me. There are way too many Christians who are living lives of quiet desperation and panic and anxiety and crisis to crisis because they've never learned to walk with Jesus. Jesus. By the way, if you look in the Old Testament, rest is not just a casual idea. God rested on the seventh day after, of creation. God designated the promised land and designated as his rest for the people of Israel. God commanded a regular Sabbath or rest for Israel in his covenant relationship with them. God commanded a sabbatical year every seven years to give rest to the land so that it could recover. Every 50th year was the year of Jubilee where the land was given rest and they were released those things that belonged to others. I mean, it's it's basically grounded in the character of God and how he created things. He knows as finite creatures we need to rest or we're going to get fried. In the New Testament, Hebrews 4, and we won't get into it, but the, the idea here is, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... And he's writing to New Testament believers, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, which he's referring to the people of Israel who failed to enter the promised land because of a lack of faith. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not, it was not united by faith through those who listened. He goes on in that text to say there still remains a rest to enter into for believers. Now, I don't know how you interpret Hebrews I could go through my explanation of what the book of Hebrews are, but they only have a minute and 53 seconds left up there for me. I can't do that in a minute and 53 seconds. I could try, but it's not going to happen. But the idea is, is that God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. He took them through the Red Sea. He brought them right up to the Promised Land, and because of their lack of faith, They didn't experience God's blessing, they didn't experience God's rest by entering into it because there's all kinds of covenantal things that God said is, I will protect you, I'll keep illnesses from touching you, your enemies won't threaten you, you'll thrive, everything, the stress of life will be gone because I'm going to provide for you. Now we often make the mistake of trying to bring that covenant relationship into the New Testament, that's going to take too long to explain too. But the idea here is that there was a problem for the disciples. Jesus said to the disciples in Mark 6 verse 31, he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Jesus didn't think it was unspiritual to take a break. Now, that may be maybe the dumbest comment I make in this entire message, and it may be too simple for you to even go, yeah, Brad, we really appreciate the the obvious. But I'll tell you, I've run into way too many Christians who think that taking a break from ongoing ministry, not permanently, but taking a break from ministry is unspiritual. And even Jesus recognized that as men are not only out doing that ministry and come back, that they're swamped again by people that are crowding in, even to the point where they don't have time to eat lunch. Now, I know that most of you have your life way more in control than I do, and maybe that they did, where you always make time for your proper needs and eat lunch and all the things on a regular basis. But if you've ever had this experience where life is so busy that all of a sudden it's dinner time, it's kind of like, wow, I haven't eaten anything all day, and I'm swamped, I'm exhausted, I don't know what I'm going to do. Jesus recognizes that his men, his disciples, needed to take a break. It is very simple. It's maybe so practical and down to earth that most of us wouldn't really pay much attention to it because it's not really spiritual. It's just. You're obviously caving because you can't heal the, handle the pressures of life and your pressure valves are gone, so you have to, okay, check out for a while because you obviously need more help than I do. But I want you to notice four things. They went away. Jesus says, we need to get away from what you're doing right now. We literally have to disengage this, and we have to go and find a spot and they literally went in a boat. Today we don't go on boats, we go on cruise ships. <laughs> I've been on a cruise, so I'm not taking a shot at anybody. But again, what, what happens in Christians is people who take holidays and vacations, there's other Christians going like, wow, how can they afford doing that? How can, how can they go and do that? And, and uh, you know, they're not giving as much as they should to ministry. You never run into that? Well, you don't hear it overtly, but you know that's what's going on in some people's minds at times. Wow, they get to do that. I've had Barbara and I do that. It's like, I have a friend of mine down in Oklahoma that I interact with once in a while, and because of my due role as a regional director and whatever, he um, he sent me a a text the other day, and he said, you want to talk? I said, well, I'm on vacation. He goes, what, you're on another vacation? (laughs) So I wrote back to him, and I said, yeah, I tend to take more vacations when my friends stress me out. Most of those trips are vacations, they're by responsibility with the regions and those kind of things, and unfortunately, the ch- and the church here has been super generous. I can't thank the leadership enough here for the flexibility for me to do both of those. I think it enriches me, I think it enrich- enriches our network and our church as well. But I am super grateful um, for what they allow me to do there. But, but you'll get run into people that will pass judgment on other people for taking breaks, that get away, that get completely detached, that get completely separated from things so that they can restore and, and recover from what they've been doing. And so they go to a desolate place. Your place may not be desolate. My wife and I were in Orlando at a resort where I got to play a round of golf. We went to the beach, we went to Epcot Center, we swam in the pools, went out for dinner once in a while. It was fabulous. We needed it. And it helps us come back ready to get going again. But I want you to also notice that Jesus wanted to take them away so that they were by themselves, but they were with Jesus. Because I think there's three things that happen in terms of rest. One is restoration, to re-energize, to restore our heart, mind, body, our emotions. It's realignment that we refocus on what matters. That's why Christ is always great to take on your vacations. So that you can realign your life on Jesus and try to get realigned on eternal things. Because you and I both know that the chaos of running kids around to this and that, your responsibilities, your hobbies, your extracurricular friends that you do things with, and all the rest of the things that you end up doing can suck the life out of life. And then it's about re-engaging and going back into ministry. Jesus is never pulling them out to permanently take a vacation from doing ministry. But there's one problem. They take off in a boat. Some guys spot them and go, hey, that dude, I think that's Jesus. So what do they do? They, get, they tell everybody, hey, they're going there, let's beat them. So they pull all these people and run around, and they get out of the boat, and there's this massive crowd, and it's kind of like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, Jesus probably didn't do that. We know Jesus didn't do that, but I bet you the disciples did. It's like, really? Jesus just said, hey, we're going to take a break and we're going to go and relax and restore ourselves and we land here we got another 150 people to deal with? Are you kidding? And the problem with trying to take a break is that there is always going to be demands on your time. They are going to be endless whether people intend it for good or not, there's always going to be demands on you to be busy and to keep doing things and to stay occupied and to fill up things and give someone else more attention. It's endless. And so we have to know ourselves. Let me me finish. I have a really old Fitbit watch. And the fascinating things about Fitbit watches, it's like Apple watches and the rest of it is these things can tell you everything about yourself that you didn't know. If you wear these things, I'll wear, I'll wear mine to sleep because I'm always curious about how well I sleep and it measures the quality and the quantity of my sleep, which on vacation was fabulous. When I'm home, is usually terrible. But what the Fitbit watch will do is it measures three different things. It measures REM sleep, which typically occur, occurs late at night And they say that that kind of sleep is really important for memory and your mood. So if you run into some of people who are even Christians and in a really bad mood, they might not have gotten enough REM sleep. Light sleep is what generally occupies most of our nights, and that's the majority of how they register our sleep. And it uh, promotes mental health and physical restoration. So in my sleep, I, I can have four or five hours of light sleep and have like 50 minutes of REM sleep. I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know how it works. And then there's another one called deep sleep, which helps physical recovery in some aspects of memory and learning. That's why some of you can't memorize Scripture and remember what's going on with it a day later. I'm kidding. But I do want to suggest this as a bit of an analogical memory aid. If Jesus strapped a spiritual Fitbit to your life, what would it tell us this morning? Spiritual rem rest, why don't you reinterpret it this way. Are you getting rest from ministry and life? Sometimes if you're in a bad mood and you're serving, sometimes the problem is you're not getting enough rest from ministry or breaks. By the way, no one asked me to do this, but there's still lots of room in things like nursery, children's ministry, and other things for people to participate. We tend to wear out the people who are absolutely faithful to that, and it's really hard at times to step, get people to step in and volunteer, even if it's like once every two months. Those people that are there all the time need some spiritual REM. Light sleep is that sometimes we're really light on our reliance on God and the Holy Spirit. The essential problem is we don't always trust him. We like, we're control freaks. We want to control the things that are going on in our life, and we don't trust him enough, and so our spiritual relationship with him tends to be barren. And our spiritual deep rest is that we're not depending or experiencing or engaging the power of his promises in our life and so we're spiritually depleted. I come to church out of duty not because I have this great desire to be encouraged by being the church together. I do things out of obligation, not out of a sense of love for Jesus. I go through the motions but it's not bringing about deep personal transformation in my heart. I have some of the disciplines but I've lost my desire for Jesus because I can click off five Bible readings a week but none of them are changing who I am. I'm doing lots of things for God but I'm a long way from allowing God to do lots of things through me. getting your spiritual rest if you're not you're putting yourself in a pretty precarious situation rest is a biblical reality based on the character of god and we desperately need it whether it's physically getting away from something for a short period of time so we can restore and realign and reengage But the most important rest is we need rest for our souls and our spirit. And some of us are outpacing Jesus, trying to do great things for him, rather than resting in his presence and allowing him to restore and revitalize our heart for him. Father, you know some of us are sitting here this morning and we're utterly exhausted. We've been spinning our wheels and it might not just be about ministry, it may be life. It's all the things we do for our kids and for our spouse. It's the activities we have, the extra hobbies we've adopted. It's our work or lack thereof. It's trying to help the neighbors. And in the end, I find that I'm not, at times, looking after myself. I'm not finding the proper spiritual rest for my own soul. And there's part of us that have to come before your throne of grace and we just say, God, forgive me for not trusting you and allowing the power of your personal presence to keep my heart refreshed and revitalized and that I find my rest in Jesus so that I can serve you and I can serve others. Father, teach me not to try to do great things for you as much as allow you to do great things through me. Help us to have confidence in your promises. To know the greatest delight of our heart is to see your faithfulness to your own promises. It's exhilarating to our heart and mind to know that you care about us and you're that faithful. Help us to be re-energized by being so aware of your personal presence in our life through the Holy Spirit that every day is the greatest day of our life because we have a relationship with the God who created us. And for this we pray in Christ's name.